0: You know, the Bible tells us that we're to bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ and that when one member suffers that we suffer together as as the body of Christ and just want to bring a prayer request before you this morning if I can Kathy uh, Villanueva had actually asked me uh, if I would uh, directly ask you just to be in specific prayer for her uh, and for her family kind of today and, and in the weeks ahead uh, two years ago today her son Caden was born uh, and he lived 52 days and then he passed away on November 7th So uh, today would actually be his second birthday, and obviously it it brings, again, just kind of a difficult season for her and for the family today being his second birthday, and and then over the next few weeks. So she just asked if you would just please remember her in prayer, just really a a challenging process as we could all uh, just certainly begin to even imagine uh, what that would be like. So uh, a couple... Raise your hand, Kathy, where we're at. Why don't a couple of you just lay a hand on her if you're nearby. And let's just just ask the Lord to minister to her and her family. Father, we pray for Kathy. We do ask that you would, just in a special way, that you'd minister your grace, Lord. You said that your grace would be sufficient, Lord. And you know how the depths of that at times can be so deep in all of our lives. And you're the God of all grace. And so, Lord, you've given her your grace thus far. Lord, these past two years, your grace has sustained her. And so we pray that your grace would continue to sustain. That you'd continue to heal and to comfort. That you continue to just speak things to her heart in the hours when she needs them. And that, Lord, you'd minister to the rest of the family as well. Jesus, we thank you at times like this for the hope of heaven. And the blessed assurance of what lies before us. We just pray... Put your hand upon her now, Lord, even as ours is. We we pray that your mighty hand would just touch her life and touch the family through the days ahead. And we ask together in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. If you do have your Bibles, let's go together to Luke chapter 15 as we continue our study through Luke's gospel together. Luke 15, we left off last week in verse 10. And this morning we pick back up where we left off in verse 11 and we're going to look, it's sort of a lengthy section, but we're going to look at verse 11 down through verse 32 which records for us this parable of what we often call the prodigal son. If you do need a Bible while we're opening in our Bibles, you can hold your hand up. The guys are in the aisle there. They'd be glad to let you have a Bible so you can follow along in God's word with us. Just keep your hand up and they'll get one to you. Luke 15, and if you are at verse 11, shall we stand together out of respect for the Word of God as I read our text for this morning's study? Luke 15, beginning in verse 11, regarding Jesus, it says, And then he said, A certain man had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falls to me. So he divided to them his livelihood." And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together, journeyed to a far country, and there wasted his possessions with prodigal living. But when he had spent all, there arose a severe famine in that land, and he began to be in want. And then he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country and sent him into his fields to feed the swine. And he would gladly have filled his stomach with the pods, that the swine ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he had come to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have bread enough to spare, and I perish with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants." And he arose and came to his father. But when he was still a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven in your sight and am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servant, Bring out the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet and bring the fatted calf here and kill it. And let us eat and be merry, for this son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, and they began to be merry. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, "'Your brother has come, "'and because he has received him safe and sound, "'your father has killed the fatted calf.' "'But he was angry and would not go in. "'Therefore his father came out and pleaded with him. "'So he answered and said to his father, "'Lo, these many years I have been serving you, "'and I have never transgressed your commandment at any time, "'and yet you never gave me a young goat "'that I might make merry with my friends. "'But as soon as this son of yours came,' who has devoured your livelihood with harlots, you killed the fatted calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that I have is yours. It was right that we should make merry and be glad, for your brother was dead and is alive again and was lost and is found. And Father, we open up our hearts now to you by faith, just longing for your Holy Spirit, To prepare us in a way that we might receive what you, as the God of all creation, would want to speak personally and powerfully to each and every one of our hearts this morning. Lord, open our ear, open our heart to receive exactly what you would want to say to us personally. And we pray, bless your word, make it come alive and be powerful to each one of our hearts And minister to us now by your spirit, Lord, and we thank you for these things in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. You know, unlike many of us, God is always ready and willing to receive rebels who return back to him. And I say that because I'll be the first to admit that when somebody fails, certainly that is hard to face and to deal with. And when somebody fails and then they come back and sort of apologize, hey, I, you know, I really didn't mean I, I missed up there, I made a mistake. And, and, and they, it seems that it's a little easier to just embrace them and forgive them and receive them back. But there's something very difficult, is there not, when somebody just... There's a real arrogant, out-and-out rebellion... Just a real brazen, disrespectful, rebellious act or rebellious choice. There's something about that that just it grates against us. It's a little harder, especially if they kind of stay in a path of rebellion, which typically rebellion lasts a little longer than just kind of stumbling and, and failing and recognizing you made a mistake. And there's just something really about that. I'll be the first to admit that, that boy, when somebody's rebellious like that, it's, it's, it's quite a bit more challenging for me maybe I'm not quite as spiritual as you, to just embrace them and receive them back if they genuinely repent and turn around and ask forgiveness and want to make right. But the reality is, is we need to always remember that God is nothing like us. God is holy. And the fact of holiness simply means that God is distinct. He's he's separate. He's unlike anyone or anything else. And because of that, unlike you and I and the way we often treat and interact with each other and the things we struggle with in our own hearts, we need to remember that God is always, always ready to receive rebels who return. Contrary to what we might think or feel in our own hearts at times, the heart of God always desires for people who have turned away from Him, for individuals who have rebelled against Him, for people who have walked away from Him, the heart of God is always, no matter what they have done, or if that's you this morning, no matter what you have done, God's heart is that they would always come back to Him. In fact, one of the favorite words God often uses and speaks towards rebels and those who are rebellious in the Bible is the word return. That's God's word to the rebel many times in the scripture, return. Jeremiah tells us in chapter 3 verse 22 that God said this, return you backsliding children and I will heal your backslidings that not only does God say return and I'll forgive you for your backsliding but God says I'll even heal your backsliding propensity to rebel and turn away from me but God's invitation to the rebel return in Jeremiah chapter 4 again God says if you want to return God says then return to me says the Lord if that's what you want to do then then God says the invitation is there return if you desire to return God says I'm ready Return to me. Come back to me. And this passage, I think, is one of the great illustrations of that spiritual reality. Remember, as we began chapter 15 last week, this parable we're looking at, a third of three parables in Luke chapter 15, that Jesus gives to show God's heart towards the lost who have walked and wandered away from him. Remember, Jesus is answering a complaint regarding the religious leaders, which we saw back in verse 1 and 2, where it said all the tax collectors and sinners were drawing near to Jesus because they wanted to hear him. They were attracted to Jesus. And something about Jesus drew them in, and all these. Tax collectors who were despised and known as very wicked, selfish, arrogant individuals and all the sinners collectively just kind of, this says they were drawing near and the religious leaders, the scribes and Pharisees, they were complaining about that and saying, this man receives sinners and he eats with them. At which point Jesus then, because their hearts were so out of tune with the heart of God, then began to share some of these parables to clarify their error. And he gave first, remember, the parable of the lost sheep. And remember, the lost sheep had gotten lost because of the ignorance of its own decisions. It had just made foolish and ignorant decisions and therefore ended up in its lost condition. But yet the shepherd valuing the sheep went after that sheep that was lost until he saved it and rescued it. Back to himself. And then he gave the parable of the lost coin. And the lost coin. Remember an adamant object. The lost coin was lost because of the carelessness of another. Because of the mistreatment of someone else. It ended up in its lost condition. But yet the woman who lost it. Remember valued it deeply. She lit a lamp. She searched diligently. Until she found it. Both of them doing whatever it took. Until they found what was lost. And restored it back To themselves, and the Lord Jesus, remember, was just portraying Himself, searching for us until He rescues us out of our lost condition. Now, in this parable we're looking at this morning that we just read, we now have a lost son. The sheep was lost because of his own ignorance. The coin was lost because of the mistreatment of another. This son is lost because of his own rebellion. It becomes very obvious when you look at this story that this son willfully chooses to walk away. He consciously decides to leave his relationship with his father and with his family. And this story illustrates the heart of God, especially I think the heart of God the Father, towards the rebellious person ...who walks away from him and just says, you know what, I want my way and I want to be independent of God. I don't want his authority over my life and I don't want him involved in my life. And therefore, they rebel and just sort of turn away. And this portrays the heart of God the Father. Which, interesting, we'll take note that instead of the Father in this parable... ...seeking and searching after the son... ...as we saw in the prior two parables... ...in this story... ...when the rebellious son walks away consciously... ...the father lovingly and patiently lets him go. And the father just waits... ...until he decides to return. And then when he does return... ...coming back as a rebel returning home in repentance... ...then the father lavishes on him... ...all types of mercy and grace in restoration and of course in this picture the father is a portrayal of god the father who shows amazing grace and mercy towards those who rebel against him but yet return in repentance the departing son is a picture of the rebellious person who walks away from god but ultimately comes to repentance and decides to turn back to god And the elder brother who we see in the latter end of the parable is a picture of those of us, and I'd be the first to put myself in that category at times, those of us who struggle with watching God show grace to a rebellious person who genuinely repents. ...and comes back and receives the mercy and the grace of God... ...and how we struggle with that at times. Look with me again back in verse 11. This parable begins by Jesus saying that a certain man had two sons. And the younger of them came and said to his father... ...Father, give me the portion of goods that falls to me. So the story opens with a father being confronted by one of his children... With the heartbreaking situation of that son desiring to depart from him relationally and circumstantially. Now, to add to the heartbreak, it's hard enough. When after you've raised a child, that moment comes when they start to depart. If they depart for good reasons, right? To go off for a noble purpose. To go pursue something that you're proud of. How much more heartbreaking for a parent when one of your children chooses to depart and wants independence from you relationally and circumstantially when they want to do nothing other than go off and just live wastefully and to live destructively. And this is what this father is confronting. Interesting, he has two sons. Both of them were raised in the same way, in the same household, exposed to the same things in their upbringing. But yet it becomes very obvious among these two sons that they take two completely different moral courses for their life. Which is a great reminder of the reality of what the Bible teaches that we all have free will. And that we each individually choose what course and what path that we're going to take morally, spiritually, circumstantially. This father had two sons. They experienced the same things. They were exposed to the same things. They were raised in the same things. And yet they went completely different directions in regards to their choices and their decisions and that's just a reality that you know important to remember as a parent because sometimes you know parent they have a child that wanders off or becomes a little rebellious and starts to make poor choices and they can condemn themselves continually and chronically when the reality is listen that child has a will and you could have raised them perfectly and they still could have rebelled do you know how i know that because the most perfect parent himself god the father guess what He put Adam and Eve in a perfect environment, way better than any of us raised our children in. Perfect environment, paradise. They lacked nothing. Their father never was a bad example. They had everything. God was their father. And what did they do? They rebelled. They rebelled. And and here we see one son choosing to go off, the other remaining. Now, Verse 12 tells us that he comes, the younger of the two, and says to his father, Father, give me the portion of the goods that falls to me. Now, it was customary for children not to receive the inheritance from their father until the time that the father had died. It was very unusual to receive your inheritance ahead of time. It was after the father died that wealth was dispersed. Typically, the older son got got an extra portion, so in this case you have two sons, the elder would have gotten two-thirds and the other son would have gotten one-third as there were two sons here. But the reality that it was not customary to receive the inheritance until after the father died makes therefore this request of the younger son at this point really rather offensive and quite hurtful to the father if you truly understand what's going on here. You have this son here really indicating very clearly how utterly selfish he is as a young man. That he really has no care or concern for his father and really is not showing any respect for him at all. He comes to him before his father is even dead. It doesn't seem even ill at this point. And just says to him, give me my goods. Give me my inheritance now. In essence, what he is saying, whether you realize it or not, is he's conveying, you know what, pops? I kind of wish you were dead already, but since you're not... And since it may be a little while till you die, and, and I'm missing in the meantime all kinds of things that I could be enjoying, I'd really like to start spending my money. So since it's probably going to take you a little while to die, then would you just give me my money now? Just give me my money now because it doesn't seem like you're going to die anytime soon. And, and he's kind of arrogantly asking for his money. Notice even the language. He says, give me. Give me? I mean, It's almost as if there's this arrogant sense of entitlement. You know, it, it, the father works and earns and creates everything, and then the son says, Give me. And it just shows you, again, where his heart is at in this whole thing. And an attitude of rebellion is often revealed, I think, in an attitude of being kind of demanding and pushy, a sense of entitlement, whereby I actually think somehow I'm entitled to something, the way this son kind of feels like he's entitled to something. Give me. And there's this sense of entitlement that somehow he actually deserves something. So he's kind of arrogantly demanding for it in front of his father here. And verse 13 tells us, verse 12, excuse me, that the father divided the goods. In other words, the father complied. He gave the livelihood, it seems, to both of his sons at this point. And not many days after, verse 13, the younger son... As was expected, that was his intention, gathered everything together, all the money in his pockets full now, and he journeys to a far country, and there it says he wasted his possessions with prodigal living. And the word prodigal just means with wasteful living. So after the son receives his portion of the inheritance, it becomes very clear, as I said, that he wants independence from his father. He wants independence from the family and he wants to be free to go forth and pursue his own ways. Apparently he felt there was something better out there in the world than being here under his father's authority and within the family and therefore he wants to go out after it and he wants to indulge it to the fool and experience it for himself and that's why verse 13 tells us that simply he just went out and began to waste all of the wealth with prodigal living. The father gives him his inheritance and now here he is pockets full of cash his selfish appetites driving him on and he just takes off and heads off to a far country ready to go somewhere far away and to do his thing and Jesus gives the sad testimony that he went forth and he began to waste his possessions with wasteful living. Wasted his possessions with wasteful living. Hey, can you please see the point here with me? And that is this, that a life lived in rebellion to God and a life lived in independence from God will always result in wasteful living. A life lived in rebellion to God and lived in independence from God will always result in waste, in wasteful living. Because we fail to recognize the good things that we've received from God and we simply, in poor stewardship, don't live the way we should with everything we've received and possessed because of Him. So when a person lives independent of God or in rebellion and just serving themselves, what happens? People waste their minds. People misuse their bodies. People waste time. People waste money. People waste opportunities. People waste... And misuse their emotions and relationships. And it always results in exactly what you see here, wasteful living. And the further a person, the further a person journeys away, the greater the waste as a result will become of their life and what their life holds. Now, again, as I said earlier, interesting to take note in this story, unique from the first two parables, that you don't see the father going after the son when he goes off to do. Now, that's interesting to me, that the father does not chase after him. There's no question, listen, no question that the father loves him. That's the emphasis of the whole story. You can't dispute the father's love when you see the way he responds when he returns. The father probably is heartbroken when he leaves, I'm sure, but yet he still lets him go and pursue what he wants to go and pursue. Instead of pressuring him, he patiently waits, and it seems he prayerfully looks for his return each and every day. And verse 14 says, But when he had then spent all he had, there then arose a severe famine in that faraway land, and he began, notice, verse 14, he began to be in want. See what happens in our story? Eventually, the path of rebellion always leads to personal emptiness. It ultimately ends up in dissatisfaction. The son runs out of his resources, We don't know how quickly, but he runs out of his resources and all the fun comes quickly to an end. And then what happens? The realities of life start to set in. The realities of life that he was ignoring and failing to recognize and the party doesn't last forever. And all of a sudden he finds himself now without any wealth, without any money, which he once had for partying up. And I'm sure all the friends loved him at that point when he was just a blast and life was just a party. Hey, just... just Enjoy, all life's about is just enjoying yourself. And all of a sudden he finds himself now and things have shifted the complete opposite direction. Now he finds, it says, verse 14, that he had spent all he had and then on top of it, a severe famine comes upon the land in that time making it more difficult. And it says he began to be in want, which indicates not only was he dissatisfied internally, but now he's even struggling circumstantially. And life's really hard now. And he's being confronted with the challenges and the problems of survival. And again, this will always be the result in this type of a lifestyle and a course. Is It doesn't matter. A person can go out and they can indulge everything possible under the sun. I don't know how much money this young guy had to blow. He could have indulged everything under the sun. But the end result is, do you know what the end result is? It's the same as verse 14 a person will always end up being in want. They'll always still end up wanting and dissatisfied and disillusioned because ultimately all of that will run out. A person will never find what they want or need apart from God. And until a person realizes that they were created for meaningful relationship with God. That's why God created us. Romans 8 tells us that. We are created subject to emptiness with a void, a God-shaped void in our heart. And we can try and fill that void in our life with everything under the sun. Pleasures and possessions and people and relationships. But there will be a nagging internal emptiness in every person, no matter what we are able to indulge. And until we realize that God... In a genuine personal relationship is what we need in our life. Until we realize that, we will keep wanting for something constantly. And we'll keep wanting and wanting and wanting and trying to fill that void without success. And this is where the son was. He's now in want, struggling. Verse 15 says, "...and then he went and he joined himself to a citizen during the time of that famine." And that citizen sent him out into the fields, gave him a job feeding the swine. And it says he would have gladly filled his stomach, he was so hungry, with the pods that the swine ate, and yet nobody gave him anything. All the friends were gone now. The money ran out, and so did all of his friendships very quickly. Eventually, again, notice that wild, wasteful living that he was so enjoying at first. Interesting, the gas ran out pretty quick in that tank. And now he finds himself here stuck in a difficult place, even having to get a job to survive. And on top of that, a good Jewish boy, he has to go out and get a job feeding pigs or swines, completely unkosher. And here you find himself, it says, so hungry as he's feeding the pigs around him. He's so hungry and struggling so bad. He's feeding these pigs and wishing he could stick the face of himself right into the trough with those pigs and start to eat. You know, something is really bad when your best friends around you're going (coughs) oink oink Life's got real bad. When your best friends are pigs and you're wanting to eat pig slop, life's got to a pretty low point. But yet that's sometimes the point that the people will ultimately have to go to, it seems. And here he finds himself now sinking to probably the lowest possible place in his life he could have ever imagined. Now what's interesting to me is this severe famine that it says came upon the land, quite honestly, that was probably the greatest blessing in disguise that ever came into this young man's life. That severe famine and the difficulty it caused is what drove him to the place where he needed to go, where he would be able to do what? To finally work some of this stuff out of his system. He just had some things he had to work out of his system. And sometimes that, we're so stinking selfish and we're so rebellious. Sometimes we, we just need to, we need to learn it the hard way. And this famine became really one of the greatest blessings in disguise... Because it was a necessary part of the process that drove him to the lowest point where he needed to go. And God knows where that is in every one of our lives. It drove him to the difficulty and the dire straits in his own life. Where he finally came to a place where he was brought to the end of his ways. And ultimately to a place of repentance. And many a times, such is often the way that God will work through people's lives. Sometimes God will have to just allow us. He'll just have to let us go to that place where we find ourselves just living like a pig and to the place where we find ourselves struggling so hard and at the lowest point so that he eventually can, can get our attention because notice that it's at this point in his life that verse 17 says, but when he came to himself. In other words, he wasn't himself up to this point. He was out of his mind. But eventually he says he came to himself and he said... How many of my father's hired servants? They have bread enough and despair. And I'm sitting here perishing with hunger and wishing I could, in essence, he's thinking, eat pig slop when my father's servants, they go to bed with full stomachs at night and all they are is just his laborers. And we find now that ultimately, through this process of personal struggle and loss, he's brought to a place of seeing things clearly. And can I say this? The fact that his father did not, maybe he got word, I don't know, but the fact that his father not only didn't go after him, but didn't send him money when he heard his son was starving in a far country, the fact that his father didn't send him aid and send him help and supply him what he needed even when he was struggling really bad, truth be told, was a tremendously important thing because if he would have got one dollar or one meal more, it would have been one more day he would have delayed in coming to his senses and repenting and realizing what the genuine need was in his life. The fact that he had nothing to turn to at that point was what helped him because had his father sent money or food, it would have just delayed his return. He would have waited another three days. He would have went on for another three months and he needed to run dry and break down and come to his senses and struggle, listen, struggle with eating the fruit of his own ways. Consequences are life teachers and I've found in my life that consequences are some of the greatest educators I've ever experienced in my life. And it was the consequences that he was experiencing that made him come to a proper perspective where he realized his own error. What am I doing? I've been so selfish. I've been so foolish. I've been so rebellious. What if I reduced my... And it often is this is the process many times God has to take us through. It's a process God will allow to work through a rebellious person. God will even lovingly, I find, withhold he'll withhold circumstantially, he'll withhold financially, he'll he'll withhold in many ways sometimes physical, material things and actually, I'm going to say it, actually make it hard for people and make it difficult for people to assist us to come to our senses more clearly. And that's exactly what you see happening here because verse 18, after he comes to his senses, he then concludes, I will arise, he says, and I'm going home to my father. And I'm going to say, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. And I'm no longer worthy, he says, to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. His personal realization of this difficult situation is what prompts him now to have a desire for what? Repentance. And it was the struggle... It was the loss. It was the difficulty. It was sinking to that lowest spot, which is what he needed to experience, that caused him, verse 17, to come to himself and to recognize where he was and then to realize, I need to repent. Which, as we said before, repent means to just turn around from the wrong way and go the opposite direction. He came to the conclusion it would be better to return home. But he came to a willing decision. He makes his own conscious choice. He's not coerced. He's not forced. He comes to his own conscious choice to leave the condition he's in and to go back to where he knew that he ultimately ought to be. And his repentance included a couple of things. Take note of it here in verse 18 and 19. First of all, his repentance included sincere confession. Sincere confession. Notice in verse 18, he says, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. Sincere confession. Confession means to say the same thing. It means to agree with. In other words, he wasn't making excuses anymore. He was taking ownership of what he did. He was fully acknowledging what I've done is wrong. I'm not going to make excuses anymore. I'm not going to justify it or rationalize it. I have sinned. That's sincere confession. Confession is an important part of repentance. Confession means that we don't beat around. We, just, we take ownership for what we did wrong. I was wrong, and what I've done was wrong, and I have been wrong. And he takes ownership, there's sincere confession. Secondly, notice also that he's openly humbling himself now, because verse 19, he says, I'm no longer to be worthy to even be called your son. He's just kind of openly, he's not afraid to be humbled. He doesn't care about his image anymore. Many times you can tell where somebody's at in the process of repentance, because you can tell, are they still concerned about their image? you know i see this i've seen this many times played out even from a ministry perspective you know somebody you know does something foolish and they say okay i admit i was wrong how soon can i start serving again because i don't want people to know you're not repenting you still care about your image but when you're genuinely broken and repentant you you humble yourself i i've been fo- i don't and that kind of goes out of your sails so there's open humility and notice there's also the submission of his rights because he says father make me like one of your hired servants. Take note of the difference. What did he say when he left, when he was all arrogant? Give me. Now he's saying, make me a servant. Father, I don't even deserve to be one of your sons. Just make me a servant. And you can tell there's been a great change in his heart. He's taking ownership. He's humbled himself. He's no longer demanding. And can I say this? This is what repentance should look like. In the last section, Jesus ...illustrated conversion twice by saying a sinner who repents... ...and we talked about that. I think here Jesus goes on and he says... ...let me give you a snapshot of what that looks like. Conversion in a heart is when a sinner repents... ...and he says let me give you an illustration by the story of the lost son... ...because this is a great illustration, a portrayal of what repentance genuinely looks like. As their genuine repentance from this son here... ...he decides what he's been doing is wrong... ...and he turns around and heads back towards what is right... And there's sincere confession. There's humility. There's the submission and letting go of all of his rights. He's not demanding anything anymore because he feels he doesn't deserve anything. And the Bible tells us to bear fruits worthy of repentance, which means this. Repentance is something you can see. It's measured. It's evident and it's obvious. And the son displayed it. Well, look at verse 20. He must have been rehearsing, thinking about this, how he was going to do it. And he says, He then arose, came to his father... But when he was still a great way off, his father saw him in the distance and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. Now when you read verse 20, it seems pretty clearly that this father had always been waiting for his son. That since the day that he left, he was watching for his return because it says in verse 20 that his father saw him a great way off. How would he have seen him a great way off unless he was looking This father had such love for his son, he probably never stopped praying for him or watching for him every day. He was anxiously waiting for the day his son would finally return home. In fact, I don't know, perhaps, did the father maybe even as his son was leaving, did his father with tears streaming down his face look into his son's eyes and say, Son, I don't agree with anything that you're doing. And it breaks my heart that you're doing this and you're going to make a mess of your life. And I love you. And I want you to know that I'm going to be here when you come back. And I'm going to be waiting for you. And again, remember, Jesus tells us all of this is a picture of the heart of God. It's a picture of the heart of God the Father. That God himself does not give up on people. God may give people room to struggle. But God always longs and waits, ultimately hoping and desiring for their repentance and their return. Jesus, when he warned Peter that he was going to deny him three times and fail, what did Jesus say to Peter? Peter, you're going to deny me three times. You are going to utterly make a perilous mistake. And then he said, Peter, but I've prayed for you. And when you return, strengthen your brethren. Even before he failed, Jesus was already planning on his repentance. He said, when you return, all I ask, use that to strengthen your brethren. And what a beautiful portrayal of the heart of God. This father here, it says, sees his son... Even as God longs and waits and and hopes and desires that we will return to him when we've rebelled against him, it doesn't matter what we've done, he's waiting. It says he ran to him, grabbed him, and began to kiss him and embrace him with great compassion. And again, this was totally undignified behavior for a Jewish man, especially for a Jewish patriarch. They did not run. This was undignified behavior in the culture. But yet, his love for his son compels him, and the father doesn't reject his son altogether. He doesn't rebuke him. You don't see him, well, let me tell you. He doesn't begin to rebuke him and to chide him. What does he do? He just extends mercy to him. In love, he just extends mercy to him. And what's mercy? I mean? It means not giving somebody what they do deserve. And this father has such great love for his son, he instantly wants to forgive him all his errors, all his offenses, because he knows he's genuinely repentant now and he's returning back. And again, Jesus is showing us that this is a picture of the heart of God, longing and waiting. When somebody rebels, God longs for them to return. If you're here this morning, maybe you've really backslidden and you have gone really far out away from the Lord. Listen, God's not looking to reject you and rebuke you and chide you. God is longing for you to come back. The heart of God and his love is waiting With a tear in his eye for the moment that you turn back around. And he will be running to you way quicker than you could ever run back to him. He's waiting. This is a picture of God. Interesting, the only time in the Bible we see God portrayed as being in a hurry. The only time. The only time the Bible portrays God being in a hurry. Is when someone who has been backslidden and rebellious desires to return to him. And when God sees that, it tells us that he is quick to forgive. He's ready to receive. When somebody's failed and ruined their life, when they're finally broken and repentant, God is ready and God is enthusiastically waiting to embrace them and to restore them. Nehemiah 9.17 says that God is ready to pardon. I love that. Ready to pardon. It just doesn't say he's willing to pardon. It says he's ready. He's ready to pardon. Look in verse 21. It says, The son then says to his father, Father, I've sinned. He starts to go through his whole rehearsal of his confession. Father, I've sinned against heaven. And in your sight, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And no doubt there's a sense of genuine brokenness at this point. There's a sense of remorse. He's seeking to take responsibility. You notice as you look at his language and his tone here, this kind of original arrogant sort of selfish attitude that was driving him back at the beginning of the story. It seems now that he's failed, now that he's experienced the fruit of his own ways and the misery of his poor choices, the wind has been knocked out of his sails and he's pretty deflated. And he seems like a different character now. He just comes to his father and he's just content to be humbly nothing more than a servant. He says, Father, I just, just make me one of your servants. I don't even need to come back into the household. He's just content to be humbled before the Lord. But look at this, verse 22. It says, but the father said to his servants, bring out the best robe and put it on him and a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet and bring the fatted calf and kill it. Let us eat and be merry for this My son, who was dead and is alive again, he was lost and is found, and they began to be merry. So after showing tremendous mercy, what does the father do now? He actually interrupts the son. The son doesn't even get all the way through his confession. If you realize what he was planning to say in verse 18 and 19... He doesn't even get a chance to finish his story. His father is so overwhelmed with love and mercy for him, he just interrupts his son and he starts showing all kinds of, not just mercy, but now grace towards him. He tells his servants right away, he says, hey, go get the best robe and go get my signet ring, the identification of being part of the family. And he says, and go get sandals. No servants wore sandals, only household members wore sandals. And get the fatted calf, which meant tremendous significance when you slaughtered the fatted calf. To share in a feast together. And now he's not just showing him mercy. By not giving him what he deserves. Now he's showing him all kinds of grace. Mercy's not getting what you do deserve. Grace is getting what you don't deserve. Mercy is when God withholds judgment and punishment. Grace is when God blesses and shows kindness. When we're completely unworthy of it. And does special things for us anyway. And here you see. Again Jesus is portraying. God the Father's heart towards the rebel who returns, that God doesn't want to just be merciful and forgive them and embrace them. Jesus says, oh no. He says, God's not just merciful, God's gracious. And many times God will bring that person back and begin to just bless and do wonderful things and extend his grace to them. Not only is he merciful, he'll show grace. And it will begin to bless and restore in wonderful and special ways. And what an amazing thing because, again, our minds would want us to think that, that God would embrace us back But and say, okay, but if you come back no longer being on the A-team for you anymore. You're going to have to be on the B-team now. I mean, I'll be merciful to you, but I can't ever bless your life again. I can't ever bless your marriage. I can't ever bless your, your walk with me. I can't ever bless what you're doing or bless... And, and God wants to do that but yet the devil would want to us, make us think no 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 God will be merciful I mean maybe he'll do that and here you see here this is a human father Jesus is portraying and he's saying look if that's the heart of a human father Jesus said on another occasion if you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children how much more will the heavenly father give good things to those who ask he's a much greater and more gracious and generous father well here he's bestowing all this grace and blessing his son and they're celebrating and rejoicing <laughs> together And look at verse 25 now. It says, Now his older brother, who was out in the field, as he came home, he drew near to the house, and he heard music and, uh uh-oh, Christians dancing. Imagine that. That's in the Bible. I won't give you interpretation. Verse 26, So he called one of the servants, and he said, Hey, what's going on? What do these things mean? And he said to him, Your brother has come. And because he's received him back safe and sound, your father has killed the fatted calf. Verse 28, notice, but he was angry and he would not go in. So now as the older brother comes back, you notice that he's quite resentful about his brother's repentance and the reception of his father and others. That younger brother had sincerely chosen To repent of his ways. He had sincerely chose to turn his life around. And walk away from his prior errors. And get right with God. And right with man and those around him. And God always honors sincere repentance. However notice. Though he's met by a loving father. And loving family members. Who embrace him and support him. And are celebrating about his repentance. When the older brother hears the story of what's happening. It instantly produces irritation in him. He's bothered by it. He's resentful and he refuses to welcome his brother. He refuses to participate. He was displeased and embittered because he himself, I remain loyal all this time. And here this rat goes out there and does that and and comes back and he can't agree with the fact of not only would you take him back, but this is the way you handle this rebel's return? You're nice to him and you bless him and you celebrate and he's got animosity in his heart and let's be honest... It says he's angry and many a times, this is why it's in here, that's a portrayal of how we respond. Sometimes, somebody lives rebelliously, they backslide, they hurt and harm all kinds of people in the process. They hurt everybody in the family, they hurt a whole bunch of people around them, and they burn all kinds of bridges, and then one day, lo and behold, they genuinely decide to repent, and God breaks them. And I'm not talking about, I'm talking about sincere, genuine repentance. And God breaks them. And they sincerely come back, humbly, confessing, seeking forgiveness. And they're sincerely broken and God's merciful to them. And God embraces them back. And then, like he does, then he even starts to bless them. And we watch that and we experience that. And if we're honest, maybe you won't be, but I will. If we're honest, we go, wait a minute. They don't deserve that. Well, that's just—that's wrong. That can't be right. They have to pay a little while longer and, and we can't process it rationally in our minds. It just doesn't seem right. And we get angry like this elder brother. Verse 28, it says, but the father goes out and he starts to try and plead with him. Listen. He's trying to tell him, why are you angry? Well, verse 29 says, so he answered and said to his father, lo, these many years... I've been serving you. I've never transgressed your commandment. Wait a minute. That's probably a little inflation there. I've never transgressed your commandment at any time. And yet you gave me no young goat that I might make merry with my friends. But as soon as this son of yours, you you can hear his tone, right? As soon as this son of yours, not my brother, this son of yours, who's devoured your livelihood with harlots, you kill the fatted calf for him. Look at this older brother here. It's sobering for those of us at times who are on this end because he's struggling just like other people are struggling. The older brother has some struggles of his own, yet his struggles are where? They're inward. He's struggling with things like pride. He's struggling with things like self-righteousness, with being unloving, with being unforgiving and bitter and judgmental. Isn't it interesting in verse 29 and 30 to notice how he's really good at presenting his own spiritual track record and he's also really good at identifying publicly all the sins and failures of his brother. Verse 29, he's presenting his own outwardly impressive track record outwardly. Hey, I've never transgressed. I've n- outwardly, I have been righteous and obedient. Building up his own track record. And then verse 30, he turns and points out all his brother's failures. Just like the Pharisees, right? This was the same kind of a thing. And just like all of us. Isn't it amazing now this elder brother somehow overlooked the fact that though he had complied outwardly with all types of righteous behavior, that nonetheless his heart was completely out of tune with the heart of the Father. Outwardly he was compliant, but inwardly he was completely out of tune with the heart of the Father. And Jesus says what? Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. And here you see the overflow of his heart. His speech indicates very clearly when you look at it, he's unloving, he's unmerciful, he's unforgiving, he's proud, he's bitter, he's jealous. And quite honestly, he's even a bit unthankful towards his father. And I think that we need to be careful at times when we try and evaluate ourselves by just comparing with the outward Performance of someone else around us. Because it's easy for anybody to look at somebody else who's just a complete failure and make themselves feel pretty good and tout their own spiritual record. And can I say this this morning? Internal sins, though they may not be practiced outwardly, internal sins, though you may not see them outwardly, they are just as wrong as external sins that you see publicly by watching the way that somebody lives, maybe. In a way that seems just carnal and worldly. And maybe I can. And maybe you can. Maybe we can refrain from behaving wrongly. But the question God has to ask me is: but what's going on in your heart? Oh, you do a great job performing outwardly, but what's going on in your heart? Because Jesus said: the scriptures say, Thou shalt not murder. But I tell you: if you've been angry in your heart, you've already murdered your brother in your heart, you're just as guilty. And see, this elder brother had issues of his own. His were just internal struggles, and here they're being exposed in the passage right in front of us. And he can't reconcile how this grace could possibly be shown to his brother who had done these things, and he can't reconcile it where? Right here. Because it doesn't make sense to him. But listen, hear me. Grace doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense. That's the whole point of it. Grace is something that supersedes human reason. To receive grace, it's not fair. That's the whole point. (laughs) That's the whole point. You have to be undeserving to receive grace. You have to be unworthy. And grace is freely given because of the generosity and the kindness of the giver. Not the recipient. And the Bible tells us repeatedly, the Lord is gracious. And that's never going to change. God's just gracious. It's just the way that he is. And here this elder brother is struggling as we struggle when God the Father is gracious. And it says, verse 31, the Father said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that I have is yours. In other words, I gave him a calf. I would give you everything. I love you just as much. Verse 32, he concludes saying, It was, notice that term, right, that we should make merry and be glad for your brother was dead and is alive again and was lost and is found. What does the father do? He rebukes and he corrects the wrong heart attitude and the wrong mindset of this elder brother. And he, and he says to them, don't you see? God has given him back to us from the dead. He's no longer lost. God's restored him. And whether the elder brother agreed with it or not... The Father still says, I love verse 32, the Father still says, look, whether you see it or agree with it in your mind or not, the Father says these three words, it was right. It was right. And for all of us this morning at times, we need to always remember it is always right to embrace someone no matter what they've done or how far they've gone if they genuinely Repent and return to embrace them, to forgive them, to show grace to them, because God is in the business of forgiveness and grace. Psalm 145 verse 17 says, The Lord is righteous in all his ways and gracious in all his works. Are we? Let's stand together and pray. Father, we thank you that you can be a God that is completely righteous and yet gracious in all your works. Thank you for the grace you've shown me, you've shown us in this room this morning. Lord, we appreciate it. Help us to show grace to others. And Father, I pray for those maybe this morning who need to know that you're ready to be gracious to them that you touch their hearts to know you're ready at any moment waiting for their return. Before we sing this final song this morning, maybe you've backslidden, walked away from Jesus and you just need to tell him you're ready to come home this morning. He'll forgive you. He'll be gracious to you. And maybe you're here and you have never genuinely made a commitment to Jesus Christ. You want to know your sins are forgiven and you want to know that you're ready to die and to go to heaven salvation comes in no other way other than receiving Jesus as Lord and Savior not being religious the Bible says whoever call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved and this morning if you want to know your sins are forgiven and experience God's grace and forgiveness for your failures as we all fail just tell God in a very simple way like this just say dear God I'm sorry for my sins against you Jesus, forgive me. Jesus, take me to heaven when I die. Jesus, fill me with your spirit and help me to serve you. Lord, I commit my heart and life to you as Savior and Lord. In Jesus' name. Let's worship the Lord.